So, Jeff, I got some new roommates. More roommates? Yeah, these are some very special roommates. You see, I found a puddle drying up out back with 11 soon-to-be-dead tadpoles in it, and I took them in under my wing. Oh, that's cool. Did You you got an aquarium? Uh, I got a small one, and I'm still waiting for some of the other supplies to come in or uh, or for me to find them at yard sales for cheap. Uh, shame that nobody's cleaning out their apartment again, and you can just pick up stuff off the side of the courtyard. <laughs> Yeah, it's too bad. They didn't have anything. Uh, they didn't, my neighbors didn't have anything good. Toilets keep appearing out there, though. There's been three over the past two weeks that keep showing up on the side of the, the road there. Um, I don't know what's going on with that. The pandemic was hard on toilets, I guess. <laughs> Perhaps. People had to actually use the facility at home instead of being able to get paid to poop. Welcome to episode 5 of 90 Schmaltz, where two 90s guys do a belly flop on the shows we grew up watching from After School Specials, TGI Friday, and Saturday Morning Cartoons. We talk about nostalgia, bad acting, and why these shows were radical. I'm Jeff. And I'm Ned. And you can find us at www.90schmaltz.cool. Or wherever else we decide to upload. I should probably smell that. <laughs> uh, spell that, because... Uh, it's a little. It is a little confusing. Nine zero s c h m a l t z dot cool c o o l. How you doing today, Jeff? Yeah, I'm. You know, getting through the day. It's been cold weather here again. I don't mind because I've my move away from the land of eternal summer. I'm always happy to have more cold. Yeah, I. It actually got cold enough up here that um, I had to close the windows last night and make sure that the heat was sitting at like sixty six. Makes for good sleep. I always say. Oh yeah, I love it. Shelby used to love it, too. Uh, we have anything new from last episode? I can't think of anything. I can't either, especially since it's been a month since we've recorded. Yeah, I have watched a good portion of the first season of Nightman, but I did fall off at some point. I can't imagine why. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about this week? Uh, we're doing gargoyles, yeah? That's right. We're talking about decorative water spouts that are put on buildings to move water away from foundations and walls. Uh, mostly in older architecture. Uh, they're essentially fancy gutters. Very fancy. And if it doesn't move water, then technically it's a grotesque or a chimera, but not a gargoyle. The term comes from the monster, I, and I can only assume from my five years of French that this is gargouille. Gargouille? Gargouille. One of those. Uh, subdued by St. Romanus in the French town of Rouen. You learned a lot in five years of French. <laughs> it's a waste. They burned the creature, the gargouli, but its head and neck were fireproof from its fiery breath, and so they hung it on the church to ward off evil spirits. And that's the story of why we have gargoyles. That's actually kind of cool. But that's just a misdirect. We're talking about a TV show called Gargoyles. A Disney animated television drama called Gargoyles. And uh, the last I'll say about real-life gargoyles is that I can't find a definitive answer on where this kind of like semi-animate, semi-statue gargoyle that we have in pop culture. It shows up in Dungeons and Dragons enemies, shows up in TV, horror, all over the place. Every time in a video game when you see a gargoyle, you always half expect that it might come to life. And I don't know where that trope comes from, but it was very popular in the early to mid-20th century. And that's what we're dealing with today. <laughs> gargoyles, the Disney animated series. In Scotland, 994 AD, Goliath and his clan of gargoyles defend a medieval castle. 
In the present day, David Sanados buys the castle and moves it to New York City. When the castle is attacked, the gargoyles are awakened from a thousand-year curse. I really wish we could have uh, Keith David on to read that instead. He's got quite a voice. We'll get there. Three seasons of this show, 65 episodes. The first five-episode pilot was cut into a movie. Uh, The entire first season was packaged on VHS. Season one is 13 episodes. It aired weekly on Fridays. Season two was 52 episodes, airing every weekday. And season three was 13 episodes, airing on Saturdays. Uh, Gargoyles premiered on October 24th, 1994. Its first five episodes aired weekly as a pilot movie that was later packaged into a movie for VHS sale. Uh, After that, the rest of the 13-episode season aired on Fridays every week. Season 2 was 52 episodes because the show was moved to a weekly format for weekday afternoon broadcast. Season 3 is 13 episodes that was for Saturday morning weekly broadcast. And I noticed while doing this, 13 episodes and 52 episodes, I thought, what a coincidence. That's exactly what ExoSquad was constructed as. And it turns out there's a thing in syndicated TV, things built for reruns or for kids to watch over and over again, where there's even something on TV trips called the 65-episode cartoon. And it's that executives would order cartoons in very specific numbers. 13 episodes is three months of weekly broadcast. 65 episodes is three months of weekday, five-day-a-week broadcast. So when a studio decides that they want to put something on TV every weekday forever, they want at least 65 episodes of it because the assumption is that kids will not be bored by seeing the same thing four times a year. David Weiss does talk about that, right? Where they originally had ordered that first season once they decided that that's what they wanted. They wanted to swap it over to, you know, an everyday cartoon instead of a once a week cartoon where they wanted the 52 episodes or whatever it was like crammed in three month period. I mean, a 10 month period or something like that. And the other magic number is there's 65 and then there's 52, which is five times a year for full weekly syndication. Man, you could just imagine how long it would take to put some of these together with them being, you know, cartoons. Five times a week is a tall order. Disney's first animated drama. It was uh, successful enough that Buena Vista Television pushed for a second season of 52 episodes to allow for the full weekday syndication. The show ultimately did well, but uh, suffered during the O.J. Simpson trial, which ran intermittently from January 24th to October 3rd, 1995. And thus... This being a syndicated daytime television show, the networks cared more about the hot news coverage uh, than any kids programming, obviously. Whether due to the trial or other reasons, uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers had become the top kids show. I I think we'll talk about it later, too, because it kind of shows up in toys as well. Power Rangers come and just really knock off gargoyles when they're at their peak. And maybe it is OJ. We can thank OJ for the fact that we lost gargoyles. Uh, I think I think maybe it's a coincidence more than I, Money Morphin Power Rangers was quite the phenom that uh, I'm sure we'll do our own episodes about the incredible number of clones because of how successful that show was. I mean, as a kid, even just sitting here, we can, you know, get to it later in the thing. But I can remember so much about running around as a Power Ranger or with the toys or any of those it was things. Everywhere. And I can barely I mean, we watched a few of these episodes. I can remember some of the characters and the voice acting is on a completely different level, but it yeah. it really doesn't match the 
the sheer phenomenon that is Power Rangers. Yeah. I mean, the story itself is more complicated. <laughs> and so the third season was a short 13-episode run, and that probably mostly exists due to larger events at Disney. In 1994, Frank Wells, the president of Disney, died in a helicopter accident. And there was a power struggle between Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner. He Jeffrey died Katzenberg. Easter, right? Easter 94. I, I believe so. Yeah. That's a, a bad Friday, right? Is that... A, When's Good Friday? I don't know. The day before. I mean, the Friday before Easter. So Friday, Saturday. Okay, good. So that, you know, that sounds like a bad Friday. Yeah, yeah, your joke. Your joke lands. Great. Thank you. Jeffrey Katzenberg was the head of the animation department overseeing a lot of the movies that we all love in the Disney Renaissance for Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Aladdin, uh, The Great Mouse Detective. And Michael Eisner was the second in command at Disney at the time. He oversaw the TV animation division more than anything, and then a whole bunch of other things as well, like the parks. Roy Disney really didn't like Jeffrey Katzenberg, and he's one of, he was one of the biggest shareholders at the time because he thought he took too much credit for the success of the Disney Renaissance, too much personal credit, that is. And I can't find good information to say how much Katzenberg actually did for these things because a lot of this stuff, it's it, who knows, what do executives do? What what do they actually do? We don't know. I mean, they but, they they decide whether or not the money is being well spent, and then uh, poke and prod on the creative talent until uh, they get what they want. I guess. Yeah. So who's to say exactly who was responsible for what? But I will say that I do think The Lion King is kind of the high point for Disney movies. There were several others that are beloved after that, but I don't think they're quite as enormous in the pop culture. Yeah, Lion King hit the right way, right? We don't make Hercules jokes the same way we make Lion King jokes or Aladdin jokes. <laughs> and not to say anything bad about Hercules, but it it does seem that, that was there was something really big going on there. But in any case, uh, because of all this, Katzenberg ended up leaving to form DreamWorks with Steven Spielberg. Uh, and as, as a result of this power struggle, there was a internal trend from all this to kind of cut off and move away from the old things that had been done. And Gargoyles was one of those things. But as a coincidence, they bought ABC in 1996, and they needed to fill that Saturday morning with something. As we talked about in the recess episode, in 1997, they would eventually come with the Disney One Saturday morning, which right. was a big block full of their own programming. But they needed something as a stopgap before they got to that. And yeah. so they ordered a third season of Gargoyles, 13 episodes. Though we talk about the third season, it's quite the tonal shift. You know, we see that... There's been a lot of complaints in general that like characters behave out of character essentially, and uh, a lot of the hardcore fandom, you know, they just don't even consider that that is can canon. But for us, we're considering it a total part of the Gargoyle TV show package. But yeah, I mean that with the power struggle, there was also just in that new Disney essentially, all the creatives from season one and two were gone. There was a brand new team. So, I mean, we can kind of understand why there may be just a slight tonal shift or whatever. I'm sure that they did the best they could with what they had. I also read something about the transition from syndicated to network broadcast meant that they were subject to more stringent standards and restrictions. So that also could have caused some problems. Oh, interesting. I did do, in one of my readings, too, they talked about going to, I forget what studio it was, but it was a, a, a subpar studio that they were going to take them to, to do the animation. Uh, I guess then, 
they changed their mind and they went with, uh, what's it called, uh, Nirvana instead of this other studio. I wish I had it up in front of me. Um, but, okay, uh, do you remember Gargoyles? Do you remember watching it when it was on television? I did not at all, except possibly in reruns or by accident. But I'll tell you what I do remember is that I went to Disney World in December 1994, and I remember seeing a bunch of posters for it. And I also subscribed to Disney Adventures magazine at the time, which was Disney's... It was a great magazine. It was a small format thing full of news stories, articles about Disney and uh, general pop culture stuff. And then they had... Generally, the last half was full of one-shot or sometimes multi-part comics. So I read a couple of one-shot Gargoyle comics in my Disney Adventures magazine. And that's what you remember about Gargoyles? Yes. Yeah, I I do remember watching this on television, but I guess with syndication, not regularly. Um, but I can remember the that theme song and, and Keith talking over that uh, intro theme song very well uh, when we first turned these episodes on to watch them. It sounds great. I could wake up to that, make that my alarm. That wouldn't be a wouldn't be a terrible alarm. Uh, lovely, soft, deep voice uh, with some yeah. some very energetic music. In Manhattan, the spell is broken, and we live again. Defenders of the night. We are gargoyles. Um, you want to talk about this fun VHS while I pull it up to read the back of it? Yeah, we found a great VHS back. Uh, I'll just go ahead and talk about the most interesting part of it. First was that it apparently came with some sort of board game. And then the last 20 minutes after the movie was someone yelling at you about the board game. Like saying... I can only assume something like blue player roll a dice and lose a turn if you roll a four or a five, uh, <laughs> or or saying red player move back two spaces or something of that nature. Uh, those VHS board games are so fascinating to me, where you put in a VHS and then play a game and just someone would yell at you in the background. Yeah, it has. Um, it talks about it. it. Says watch the movie, play the game. So the back of this this movie VHS reads Scotland 994 AD the inhabitants of a medieval castle are protected from the ruthless invaders by a mysterious race of powerful and noble creatures stone by day alive by night they are the gargoyles led by the mighty goliath and the beautiful demona however the uneasy alliance between humans and gargoyles is soon betrayed and the gargoyles are put under a spell for a thousand years but by whom Manhattan, 1994. One by one, a small clan of surviving gargoyles finally awakens, only to find their castle resting atop a New York skyscraper owned by wealthy industrialist David Xanatos. Xanatos wants them to recover valuables stolen by commandos. But after a thousand years, can humans be trusted? This thrilling edge-of-your-seat adventure is packed with special effects from Disney's legendary animators and the voice talents of Ed Asner and Jonathan Frakes, Marina Sirtis from Star Trek The Next Generation. And now you can swoop the gargoyles up on video. At the top, it has from USA Today, Disney's gargoyles, as stylish as anything from Disney Animation Hit Factory. And let me pass. I can pass this over to you. You can uh, take a look that it does have at the bottom. Watch the movie, play the game. If It's a linear-looking board like Candyland. And on the screen, David Xanatos is yelling, Stop! Move back four spaces! <laughs> so... You can only imagine what a 
a thrilling game that might be. And in fact, give me one second. I'm going to see if it's on Board Game Geek. It's got a 4.5 on Board Game Geek. That's pretty dire. Yeah, definitely The only is. review is, <laughs> is one person saying, I had this. Someone has posted the entire thing on YouTube. Oh, that's cool. So I really love the specificity of 994 AD that's <laughs> in all of these descriptions. Uh, as if we might be upset that it was uh, only a 994 year long curse. Or we might be worried that the movie was taking place in the year 2000. Uh, they wanted it to be very clear that it was exactly 1,000 year long. The inciting incident happened in 994 AD. I mean, that's a fun fun time, though, right? That's when the Danes uh, start moving towards England, right? Or uh, let's see, 994. Yeah, a Danish fleet under uh, Olaf uh, Tervasen uh, sails up the Thames estuary and besieges London at this point. Uh, King Ethelred II uh, then pays Olaf uh, silver and... Uh, I guess Olaf also gets uh, baptized that year as a Christian. So there are a lot of things happening in the general vicinity of these gargoyles. Uh, who's it produced by? You just have company. It's produced by company. It's <laughs> what, what happened there? <laughs> it's produced by Disney Animation. Yeah. <clears throat> or Buena Vista Television or one of their subsidiaries. Uh, we lost We lost the note somewhere in a cut and paste, but we all know who we're talking about here. The animation was done by Tama Animation. It's a Japanese company that did a bunch of work for the Disney Afternoon series. Right, except for season three, which is Nelvana, as I stated earlier. As far as series creation, there's no creator credit on air. Uh, Greg Weisman seems to have adopted the show as his very own. He was he does describe himself as one of the creators, and he is definitely its most vocal and visible proponent going forward. Yeah, he's still actively, you know, supporting the show, especially when Disney Plus came out in 2019. But uh, 12 of the 13 episodes of the first season were written by then-husband and wife team Michael Reeves and Bryn Chandler. Weissman only came on board as co-producer for episode 6 and then stayed on through the rest of season 2. And I think some light work on season 3 as far as writing. Uh, just for the first episode for season 3, all the rest were some uh, the new creative team. So it's difficult to say who exactly is responsible for what uh, in the way that many of these things can be that way. But whoever did it, did a good job. And fun fact, co-producer Dennis Woodyard was also the producer of season two of Exosquad. That is a fun fact. Music by Carl Johnson, who also did Animaniacs, Mighty Ducks, the television series, uh, the animated series. Yeah, the one where they were weird alien superheroes? Yes, that's the one. And then we get to dive into the main cast, which I before we even start this, I just want to talk about how absolutely fantastic this voice cast is. This is a stacked cast. We have Goliath, which is Keith David, you know, the king. king. Yeah. He's an incredibly busy man. I count 35 completed IMDb credits from 2020 to 2022, 345 credits total. You, I mean, you hear his voice, you know exactly who it is. Scotsmen called them the fair folk. The Vikings called them dark elves. They are changelings, shapeshifters. Yeah. yeah I mean, he got his start doing the thing and they live. I think that's Great films. Um, his early big roles. Our next gargoyle, Brooklyn, uh, played by Jeff Bennett. Uh, that's another strong working voice actor with 572 credits. That's so kind of so many. <laughs> that's silly. I mean, he so he's the voice of Johnny Bravo and he's Kowalski um, in The Penguins of Madagascar. Uh, Lexington is uh, Thom Adcox Hernandez. Might be Tom, but... 
Yeah, it probably it's is Tom. spelled Thom. Uh, he has a, or I spelled it incorrectly on the sheet. Oh, either way, yeah. Uh, he had a few walk-on roles. Uh, he was the voice of Felix the Cat in The Twisted Tales of Felix the Cat. And then, you know, Hudson, our old man of the Gargoyles, played by Ed Asner. I don't even know, you know, what they had to do to get him on this show. He uh, did a lot of voice work. He seemed to literally, I think he seemed to enjoy it. I, Which could be very true because i mean he has just so much as much as you see him on screen like mary tyler moore and all that stuff then we you know we get plenty of voice acting here in gargoyles and up and freakazoid and thunder alley thunder alley's the sitcom that i want to cover at some point where he plays the grandpa in a uh, automotive mechanics garage with uh one of the first roles for uh, six sense kid Haley joel osmond oh okay that I remember at the time liking, uh, but it's probably a pretty mediocre sitcom, but I'd really like to revisit it for the show. <laughs> um, Bill uh, Fagerbake plays Broadway, um, who also is a prolific voice actor, but you would uh, probably recognize his voice as uh, Patrick Starr from uh, SpongeBob. And then we get to get into essentially, you know, this is this show almost was like a Star Trek alum revival. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of Star Trek people on cast and in the guest cast. Yeah, you want to go through those? Well, sure. The first one, Frank Welker. What a what a working yeah. actor. So this is our first starring encounter with the legend because he apparently did three episodes of Recess. We're not going to mention every time Frank Welker does voice work for a show because uh, this man has 872 IMDb acting credits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's a good voice actor because he's... The current voice of Fred from Scooby-Doo and the current voice for Barney Rubble, which uh, obviously gets him quite a bit of work. They keep making Scooby-Doo's, so if you can get to be a voice actor for one of the main cast of Scooby-Doo, you're going to be eating well for the rest of your days, for sure. But he somehow became Hollywood's animal sound effect voice acting man. He's also, along with Fred and Barney Rubble, Scooby-Doo and Dino, and notable other weird credits. This is not an exhaustive list because he has dozens of weird credits. He was Apu the Monkey from Aladdin. Is that the movie or the TV show? The cartoon. Okay. I mean, maybe he's in the new one. I didn't check that. He's the dolphin from the underwater Star Trek clone Sequest DSV. And he played the parrot in the 1999 shark movie Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> and also Star Trek Three: Search for Spock as Spock's Screams. That's a credit right there. And he played an alien creature in Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> He did. He put in that uh, nothing human, right? When the thing's eating the ship or whatever it is. Yeah. We'll see more of Frank Welker, but uh, it's really impressive. Once you know who he is, how he is literally everywhere. He is. <laughs> Who's next? Jonathan Frakes is uh, David Xanatos. Will Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. Then we have our uh, evil gargoyle, Demona, played by Marina Sirtis. Yep. That seems to be a fan favorite. Not evil, but she is the on the other side of the team of Gargoyles. Yeah, she she's seen some stuff and it hasn't affected her very positively. Yeah, she's going her own way. Yeah, and that's, I mean, Marina Sirtis is Deanna Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation. So that's our second main cast Star Trek The Next Generation person. Uh, next we have Sally Richardson Whitfield playing Elisa. Eliza? El- Elisa. Elisa, okay. She was in Anaconda's. She was a main cast in Eureka, and she had a walk-on in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. 
and then just for the sake of showing this this general voice Stacked cast guest cast as yeah well. uh we'll just give you other notables and um brent spiner star trek michael dorn star trek lavar burton star trek kate Melgrove. star trek cole meany star trek avery brooks star trek nichelle nicholas star trek and then jim belushi John Ray's Davies, Clancy Brown, Rocky Carroll, Tom Wilson, Tim Curry, Cree Summer, Lawrence Bain, William Morgan Shepard. Like, this list is just nuts. Of and there's all more of the besides. Yeah, there's so many major credits. It's uh, an incredibly large amount of notable people in this guest cast for some reason. Did Aw- it win any awards? Awards. There were some daytime Emmy nominations. Uh, the first one was for Keith David outstanding performer in an animated program uh, this was 1996 by the way and uh, carl johnson was nominated for outstanding music direction and composition so nathan lane won for timon and pumbaa oh in 96 okay for but also in the running here this is this was a pretty good category here ed asner for playing j jonah jameson in spider-man oh cool j jonah jameson spider-man and lily tomlin for playing miss frizzle in the magic school bus Wow, what a year. And then Ernie Sabella for playing Pumba, and Rita Moreno for playing Carmen Sandiego for the Carmen Sandiego cartoon. Now, who and the won music that? direction yeah. uh, that Batman won. Okay. I, no argument there. Although Gargoyles does have very good music. It I'm has very, gonna, very I'm good gonna music. I'm going to point that out right away that I'm very pleased with what I've heard in everything. So we've arrived at the part of the show where we picked two episodes, and then we watched them, not live, because that would take too long. And then we talk about them. This is that section. But how do we pick our episodes? Episoderatings.com. We, go with, we try to go with the highest and lowest rated episode. We had some difficulty this time where the more hi- highly rated episodes were generally part two or three and a longer... I mean, we did that for Recess, too, but this is one one episode of Gargoyles is... Two, two episodes, episodes of Recess. Of Recess. Yes. Yeah. True. So we found one of the highest rated uh, standalone episodes. But even the standalone episodes seem to be pretty woven into a narrative. They definitely are. And we noticed a pretty clear downward trend. We like to talk about the little graph that comes up on episode ratings. And it is clear that uh, season three is less well liked than it, the rest of it. Yeah, it definitely takes a dip. So our first episode, season two, episode eight, Vows. Directed by Frank Parr and written by Sherry Goodhearts. I believe Greg Weissman gets a uh, writer credit on this as well. Uh, The synopsis for the episode, uh, Xanatos and Fox are getting married, and the longtime frenemy of the Gargoyles asks Goliath to be his best man. The sentimental heart of Goliath leads him to reminisce on the time long ago when he and Demona were still in love. Goliath attends the wedding as the best man and he brings a piece of the Phoenix Gate with him. Unsurprisingly, it turns out to be another of Xanatos' schemes. This time, to obtain said piece of this artifact, Phoenix Gate put it back together and opened a doorway through time. Xanatos uses the gate to take them all back in time, and once they're back there, Goliath proves his goodness and belief that all persons have some good in their heart, and Xanatos sets up to give himself seed money for his future endeavors. And the best part, there are no paradoxes here in this time travel episode, as apparently they all already happened. Good time travel, as far as time travel rules. It is a good time travel rule episode. Now, take it home. If I didn't fear the damage you would do to the time stream, I'd gladly leave you here. 
But you won't, because you didn't. Time travel's funny that way. <laughs> and I like Xanatos giving himself a small loan with the power of time travel. It's just kind of amusing that he literally has to go back to, what is that, 970-something A.D. He gives this coin to whoever who puts it in an envelope and is then going to give it to himself in 1994 or whatever it is. I mean, I'm not going to quibble too much with it, but there's there's got to be something better if you go back a thousand years that you can that you can find a value. But a coin's an easy one. It doesn't cause any uh, paradox problems. So I'll take it. Uh, I thought this episode was great. Yeah, I enjoyed this episode. It kind of plays correctly. The characters are kind of who they're supposed to be. And you get a little bit of backstory with Goliath and Demona and their, you know, early love. I like that we get a previously on Gargoyles, as I noted in Exosquad, particularly. Exosquad did not seem to care if you knew what was going on or not. <laughs> and I appreciate that Gargoyles took some time to let me know what was happening so that I could watch the episode and appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's helpful going into to that. And I mean, talking again about the Goliath and Demona, they have a very good interaction, especially when it kind of gets to the point where Demona meets Demona, so her younger self again, and they do a whole back and forth, and she tries to turn her to the dark side. I'll just put that in quotes early on. Um, you must know I'm right. Can't you see I am what you will become? I will never be like you! Our Goliath from the future talks Demona from the past out of it. But at the end, I like that Demona kind of comes and says, I remember you telling me that. I remember how I felt, and it still made no difference. I am still who I am today. And that's actually that's kind of, yeah, it's it's nice. It, it shows you how this was kind of predestined, right? And uh, that was a good speech you gave. I'm sure we'll pipe it in somewhere around here. Are you injured? You, the others, all gone. What am I to do? Do nothing. Nothing? Do not worry. Do not wait or look for this catastrophe. Live in the moment. Attend the petty jealousies and angers that prey upon your heart. Fortify yourself with love and trust, and you need not fear this future. But most of all, fulfill the vows of love you make, for they can surely save you. I shall. You have my oath. I had hers once, too. Of course it was a good speech. Freaking Keith David gave it. Yeah, things I enjoyed. I wonder if there's any other cartoon where the, the antagonist asks the hero to be his best man. It just seems to me that if if a guy who you have been enemies with in the past asks you to be his best man, and especially if it's a man who's known for schemes, <laughs> you should think very long and hard about it instead of just saying, yeah, all right. Fox and I are getting married tomorrow night. I want you to be the best man. But he did think long and hard. He he thought about it, and he turned to stone, and then he decided that he was going to do it. And I, I you know, it kind of plays into the character. He really is yeah. a softie. Uh, he's a sucker. I do like that one scene in there where they meet when they go back in time, right? They use the gate and the, his, his guy says, Oh, it's going to be a short honeymoon or whatever he says. And then literally when they finally come back to the future, it is what, like a second or two after they left. That's uh, well done writing wise. Yes. Convenient. Uh, I like how grumpy Xanatos's dad is all the time about his weird, rich son. 
I like William Morgan Shepherd with a, uh, a Spanishy Scottish accent. And he's just grumpy to be there the whole time. Like he's just so mad. He really is. He, he like to be invited to his son's wedding in the past. <laughs> what kind of life do you lead? His uh, he has no. It seems like he has like no faith in his son. Like he's not impressed by the fact that he's you know a rich capitalist. Uh, and I also like the some Illuminati stuff going on. Oh yeah, there was with like the pins and stuff, and they wear his pins so that they know who he is. Right, and when he goes back in nine nine, uh, I mean nine seventy, whatever, they they recognize him by the pin. Oh, well, you're you're dressed funny, but I know you're an Illuminati. And then I also liked that the priest pronounced them husband and wife. <laughs> uh, it was very strange Borat esque pronunciation. Was that the priest or the archmage? I'm a lapsed Catholic. I don't know what the ranks are. I now pronounce you husband and wife. But yeah, solid episode. I mean, good stuff. It's too bad there's not like more to talk about, but it's like the Phoenix Gate is fun. Basically, his whole plan, right, is to invite Goliath to the wedding so that he feels enough feelings that he decides to try and reconcile with Demona. That's exactly it. He's trying to get him back with his ex so that they'll put back together the magic time travel mirror. And as soon as he hangs it over, uh, hands over that piece of the Phoenix Gate, she just like calls him a moron. It's fantastic. And to listen to Frakes and uh, Sirtis, basically Riker and uh, Troy, make fun of Keith David is pretty great. Well, I have no other notes about that episode. I don't either. I, I very much enjoyed that episode. I thought it was uh, well written and well put together, well edited together. Yeah, if I can, uh, I'm I'm skipping ahead again with with this, but I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to be watching some gargoyles. I've watched a couple episodes now, uh, but only a couple. I just wanted to get like a a general feel, especially on that tonal shift into the for season three, so I had a better understanding when I talked about it. You're lucky the podcast police are asleep. Yeah, we both keep doing it. I did it for Recess. You did it for Nightman. I did it for Gargoyles. You can do it for our next uh, our next one. All right, our next episode, season three, episode six, the Dying of the Light. Um, this is uh. Rated as a 6.4. Did we do that for the last one? I don't think we did. That was an 8.0. All right. You'll have to probably just edit that in. I think the readers can figure it out. You're right. And you know what? We're doing literally doing top and lowest. So what's it matter? Yeah. All right. Just Uh, do it again. No, it's higher than 6.4. I'll use whatever I got here. That's no problem. And this was the one that didn't have a director credit. Yeah. Interesting. Did season three have that problem generally, or is that just this one? I yeah, I didn't look. I let's take a quick look at some of these episodes. Season three didn't have many director credits for a lot of these episodes, so we don't know who, who did was it. Directed by uh, uh, we do have written by Eric and uh, Julia Leewald. In this one, we learn that the Archmage, who's the big bad of the series, and as Jeff has told me off camera, not a Catholic rank, caused Hudson's original eye damage the quarrymen a group of people uh, opposed to the gargoyles that's all i know about them from the episodes i've watched they attack a group called people for the interspecies tolerance and they call them the pit crew <laughs> i don't think it's very it's fine <laughs> so the quarrymen attack a group trying to promote tolerance between humans and gargoyles hudson begins to have problems with his other eye and after being attacked by the quarrymen and almost killed, finally admits that he thinks he's going blind. He seeks out his blind friend, Jeffrey Robbins, played by Paul Winfield, who takes him to a doctor to perform glaucoma surgery. After the surgery, as he's recovering, 
both Jeffrey and a blindfolded Hudson fight the quarrymen. Hudson learns to use all of his senses and learns that he can still be a good warrior no matter what help he needs. And in the end, he recovers and admits that it's okay to ask for help. And I'll say, if this is bad, then that's pretty good for the show. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some bits and pieces of this where you kind of you kind of feel a certain way about the pacing and whatnot. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that I can complain about in this episode is pacing is kind of a little bit all over the place. It's a very, there's a A plot and a B plot and they kind of overlap kind of not comfortably, but at the same time, the A plot's way better. Right. They do fit together as a puzzle. It's kind of like um, puzzle pieces where one's a high def picture and the other one's kind of slightly (laughs) more pixelated. Yeah, because the actual uh, Hudson going blind and going to talk to his friend about it. It's like a learning moment. The whole episode is a learning moment. Hudson tells his blind friend that he's a gargoyle. He admits it. And the friend says, I knew the whole time. He says, don't ever do that again. He says, do what? Assume that I would be intolerant. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, their their little friendship is good. It's a very good moment. And then, I mean, even at the beginning, the introduction, they do the normal gargoyles introduction, and then Keith David's voice continues with the voiceover talking about Hudson being a stubborn old man, essentially. And Ed Asner's is little inconsistent Scottish accent, but generally pretty good. Same dream over and over. Why now? Yeah, no complaints for that. And Paul Winfield uh, is a good duo at that moment in time. They, They do talk to each other well you there feels like a tiny bit of chemistry instead of what it feels like sometimes especially for a walk-on role right well i do like that uh apparently gargoyle um anatomy is similar enough to human anatomy that um, the doctor can perform a two to three hour glaucoma surgery yeah i wonder what kind of anesthesia they got to use yeah and uh, what's the implications of what if they turn to stone during the operation oh man uh, while the anesthesia is in effect, I didn't even think maybe they didn't about use that. anesthesia because he's so tough. Maybe, yeah. He said, "I want to see the blade coming at me. I'm a true warrior." My, one of my favorite voice actors, Rob Paulson, did a walk on at the beginning as one of the people for the ethical treatment of gargoyles. No, sorry, people for interspecies tolerance. The pit crew. Mary, how dare we presume that the gargoyles would welcome our attention? The only sane response is to open the lines of communication and let them come to us. Uh, the bad guys in this seemed pretty dull. So the A, the A plot was really good, had some good emotional beats, good writing, and then there's just a the Foot Clan attacks kind of thing. Men in masks shooting at them. It is kind of. And the part where Hudson gets attacked almost seems it's just put there, right? It, the whole thing is like this weird foreshadowing to him, you know, needing to deal with the eye thing. And they kind of just throw some stuff at him. But yeah, that's Rob Paulson, right? That's the yep. one quarterman. And, and Mighty Max. Yeah. And then um, Jeff Bennett is the, the other quarryman that you can uh, clearly see here. Yeah. Uh, I like the friendly protagonist cop threatening vigilante justice against a suspect. <laughs> to try to get him to turn state's evidence that's very cool and then the gargoyle flies by and it really uh really makes an impact very very cool uh ethical policing uh i thought it was very respectful of the ophthalmologist to say that we're shooting from the hip here uh, because i probably would have said flying blind and that would have been a very bad thing to say uh, <laughs> in the, to a person who needs glaucoma uh, operation but you probably think of these things if you're an ophthalmologist I do have one major 
issue with this episode, especially when we talked, I mean, I talked about the miscellaneous pacing, but at the very end, um, he's still blindfolded. You know, he says that Jeffrey helped him work through, you know, everything that happened. We should probably talk about the fight scene first, actually. Sure. Tell me about it. That fight scene where they're like fighting the quarrymen blind. And at one point in time, they decide to flood a hallway and use the pad defibrillator pads to essentially shock the water and knock the quarrymen out. They're doing all of this one blind, one blindfolded. Yeah, functionally blind. Uh, yeah, that it's. Uh, I mean, it's like a feel-good victory for that one. Yeah, but then that ties into the end, right? He says Jeffrey helped him, and then both the two gargoyles look at. They say Jeffrey together, and you know, I mean, anytime somebody says Jeffrey with a little bit of like, wait, what? I just, you know, I can hear my my wife or anybody saying. Oh it to yeah, me. it's true. It's your name. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll find some Neds in the near future, but. But then my gripe is, right, they they basically do that. They take him. They fly away from wherever this hospital is. And they're right in front of the castle. And Hudson at Asner basically then says exactly the answer to the question that they asked. It would have been like a 25-minute <laughs> flight at that point in time. Yeah. He's getting old. Give him <laughs> I mean, that pacing. Like, <laughs> you're just sitting silently. And then all of a sudden, 20 minutes later, somebody answers your question. And you're like, wait, what? Are you talking about? Still a good episode. I mean, as you said at the beginning, if that's the worst what we got, that's yeah, pretty great. This is still half of a great episode, Yeah, I think. It's just that the actual action part is pretty dull. I appreciate there's some bad guy here who talks about getting... Let's get us a gargoyle. The gargoyles are coming. Wait. Our inside guy scoped out a gargoyle in the eye clinic here. And they really hate those gargoyles. They got like the hammer, like the... On their yeah, they're just using like Thor hammers to yep. to smash up things. It's pretty funny. They're just generic masked Cobra Commander looking men. That is exactly what they look like. Too. <laughs> the action scene where he learns that he can he can fight blind. They turn off the power, so the lights turn off. The bad guys decide to light on fire all of the construction material sitting in this hallway conveniently. Oh, that's right. That's why and then, the hallway and then that flooded. Turns. I don't believe the fire, st- the sprinkler gets hit by the good guys. So they douse the fire and then they defibrillate them. And I was just thinking about how, and then at the end they're like, oh boy, everything's fine. Let's all go home. I like how they found the defibrillator. <laughs> I just like to think about the evening news. It's like uh, terror today in the hospital, eight men dead. Uh, <laughs> the hospital closes for two years for remediation from the stink water released by this, the sprinkler and the fire damage to the walls. Uh, it's like millions of dollars lost. <laughs> well, that's not any part of our story. Yeah. Uh, I always love what would the real world consequences of this fun adventure be? Uh, and in this case, that, that hospital is closed for the foreseeable future. Probably. Yeah, probably. Well, all right. How about the roundup? Where is it streaming? It's on Disney plus, And I assume that'll be forever until God forbid they figure out the Disney plus vault. Um, and then how about those toys, right? That Kenner. Yeah, they looked pretty good. They had, uh, we got a 22 five inch figures, two vehicles and a castle. The castle looks all right. And there was like a, a double release. Like, uh, they had the first set and then the second set, which I think still works in for the 22, but, uh, okay. Uh, but continued fan interest has ensured that there are more toys out now, probably than there were during the show's run. Uh, and during the show's run, I mean that early run, they were, uh, 
the number one boys toy in the US uh, until Power That's Rangers. Impressive. Power Rangers is a big thing to compete against. So to be anywhere near that, much less outperform it is pretty impressive. They look good, but now you've got Funko Pops. There's a new line of great looking toys by Nika, who I am not terribly familiar with because I've been avoiding spending a lot of money on things uh, frivolously. Uh, but God, they got a lot of good things out there now. I've never really, well, never really. I definitely used to be into all those type of toy things. Now it's harder for me to rationalize spending the money on cool-looking pieces of plastic. A uh, world based on the television series was initially considered for Kingdom Hearts, but was scrapped. Uh, there's a fandom. This is our fun facts. This is our fun facts section, by the way. Uh, there's a fandom and Greg Weissman website, which we'll have posted that you can check out. That goes into absolutely. Re- ridiculous detail of the world the characters where they the creatives wanted to take the characters what type of shows any spin-offs i mean like take a look at it it's looks like a uh a 1996 geocities website but man it is jam-packed more information than you ever could think of asking for last is a uh, we missed out on a star trek man because patrick stewart was considered for goliath but he was too expensive yeah, he was. He, they couldn't come to a, a price tag for. And I think the show's better for it. Absolutely, Keith David is a absolute gem in this. There's nothing against Patrick Stewart, but I think Keith David is a better, more emotive voice actor. Yes, I think Patrick Stewart is very theatrical, and he can be a lot of fun. But Keith David really brings a lot of. There's a lot of emoting in all, in all of his voice work. There's you can tell he's thinking about it and doing things, whereas maybe. Patrick Stewart is more reading the lines in the acting way. So you have any new feelings on this? Uh, no, I always thought it was good. My new, my only new feeling is that now I know it's good, and I'll probably continue to watch it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of at the same page with you. I definitely want to check out a couple more episodes than I already have, just to kind of see how this story like weaves itself together. Because that's the nice thing about it. Now we got to rate it. Now we got to rate it out of fifteen. Let me pull up the old rating sheet. Let me get that too. All right. You want to go first? I'm going, yeah, I'll go first. 14 out of 15. Yeah, I want to go uh, 13.5 out of 15. And then the question, is this nastier than Wolf Bronski? Uh, ain't nothing nastier than Wolf Bronski. Whatever that may mean. And I say yes. Maybe we do it as like, because if we look back at our previous, right, it's kind of complicated. <laughs> Yeah, because we said no for recess, but yes for Nightman. So that's a good question. What is Exo Squad was a yes? Yeah, because Wolf Bronski's on it. Yeah, uh, it's, so you can't. Right, Seventh Heaven is obviously too wholesome for that. Well, obviously we have, we have, to, we have to hash out now today. Right, what being nastier than Wolf Bronski means to me. All right, so let's. What does nastier than Wolf Bronski actually mean? Because maybe the answer is going to be no for me. I think I think you got to be somewhat radical. You got to have like some uh, wild dude hair, uh, burping. I don't think this is nastier than Wolf Bronski. I don't think this is nastier than Wolf Bronski. So yeah, I think we're, I think we're going for just it's a feeling. Yeah, it's a feeling. And there's no one in this. There's no single person I can point to in this series that I have seen that is nastier than Wolf Bronski. So, therefore, it is not nastier than Wolf Bronski. But Explosion Man, strange internet Explosion Man from Nightman is nastier than Wolf Bronski. Yeah, 100%. We'll, we'll, we'll solidify that as we go along. No, I like this. We have to point. We have to be able to point to someone that is nastier than Wolf Bronski, or as nasty as Wolf Bronski. Yeah, that's fair. It's greater than or equal to. This is. It doesn't have to outpace him. That's why 
Exo Squad can be nastier than Wolf Bronski. Well, this was a good conversation today. I'm glad we had this talk. <laughs> and next episode, we'll look at Saved by the Bell. Great. Ding-a-ling-a-ling. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find us at <laughs> www.90schmaltz.cool and wherever we decide to upload. Questions, comments, likes, or other likes, you can send send us a message at 90 schmaltz 90 s c h m a l t z at gmail.com great see you next time thanks Bye. uh we need to we need to figure out a sign off you should use the recess one that i always do which one? Oh, uh my old man don't believe in otters <laughs> well no i meant uh sorry not that i always do the way that you say goodbye we're like i give a big old pause at the end why are you still here goodbye. get out of here oh yeah podcast over Go yeah, on. we'll come up with a uh, like some sort of music, and we'll just say stupid shit at the end, and then. What are you we'll still leave. doing here? Podcast over. Go home. All right, we'll, we'll, I'm we'll put something in there. We live again.